Well, it's a joy to be back with you guys this evening and to begin our study on one of the most overlooked books in the entire Bible. By show of hands, how many of you here tonight have read the book of Philemon before? And on top of that, how many of you guys think you could summarize the central message of that letter? So first part of that question, how many of you guys have read this book before? Okay, a few hands few hands in the air. So of you four that rose your hand, how many of you guys think, if you, if you just had to give a central, very short summary of the book, do you, do you think you could do it off the cuff? I, okay. Well, hey, this is perfect. Uh, it's good to see a mixture of those who, this is going to be maybe your first time reading the book of Philemon and studying it at length. And for some of you guys who've read it before, for honest with ourselves, there's parts of the Bible where we read it, but... We don't fully grasp what's contained in that portion of Scripture. So regardless of where you fall on that spectrum, whether you've read it before, you just don't really understand it, or you've never read it before at all, I'm so grateful that we're going to be able to study this book over the next three weeks. And as we prepare to begin studying this part of the New Testament, I want to use tonight to first lay the groundwork for what we're going to be trying to accomplish in the weeks to come. If you've been coming to youth on a consistent basis over the past two years, you've learned by now that it is unwise to begin studying any book of the Bible without first being aware of its key background information. In other words, a deep and accurate study of God's Word requires, at the very least, some working knowledge of the following details. We need to first identify, if we're going to study a Bible or study a book of the Bible deeply, we need to first identify how the book fits together or how it's structured so we can work through it section by section. You want to see how the book of the Bible flows together, how it fits together as a unit. We also need to be able to identify the theme and the purpose for why that book was written. We need to identify the author of the book that is being studied. We need to identify who the original recipients of that book of the Bible were, whether it was a letter or a gospel or historical narrative, regardless of the case may be. We need to know who it was written for. And lastly, we need to identify around the time in which a part of the Bible was written. What is the estimated date of a part of the Bible being written? Well, during our time together tonight, we're going to examine each of those details in the order that I've just provided you with. You'll notice that's the order that your handout is structured in. So if you get lost at any point tonight, just make sure you're aware of which of those headings we're going to be under, and you should be able to track just fine with our introductory study of Philemon. So before we get started with our introduction to this New Testament letter, I want us to read it together as a whole. And that's what we're going to do at the beginning of each of our study over the next three weeks. We're going to look at the totality of the book of Philemon because it's so concise. And then we're going to break it down one section at a time. Tonight's going to be the first section of the letter to supplement our overview of the letter. And then we'll look at the second and third sections after that. So um, if you haven't done so already, I want to encourage you to turn with me to the book of Philemon. Comes right before the book of Hebrews. And once you get to Philemon, um, I'm going to read the text out loud for us tonight so you can follow along in your copy of the Word of God. As usual, I'll be reading our text out of the New American Standard Bible. So you follow along with me in your copy of Philemon, starting in verse 1. 
The text reads, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. Verse 12, I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time also, prepare for me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And my friends, this is the word of the living God. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts this evening and in the weeks to come. Well, when we consider the book of Philemon holistically, and when we consider how faithful preachers have worked through this portion of God's Word throughout church history, I believe there are three main sections contained within this letter. Each of these three sections found within Philemon is going to correspond with each of the three lessons we will devote to unpacking this letter in the forthcoming weeks, right at the top of your handouts. You'll see how I've gone about structuring the book of Philemon. The first section of Philemon spans from verse 1 to verse 3, and for the purposes of this series, I've chosen to summarize those verses as the affectionate forward, the affectionate forward as found in verses 1 to 3. The second section of Philemon spans from verse 4 to verse 16, and for the purposes of this study, I've chosen to summarize those verses as the appeal for forgiveness, the appeal for forgiveness corresponding with verses 4 to 16. And lastly, third section of Philemon spans from verse 17 to verse 25. And for the purposes of this series, I've chosen to summarize those verses as the application of forgiveness. 
the application of forgiveness. And like a good Baptist, as you can see, I chose to use alliteration to hopefully jog our memories as we work through this letter. We have the affectionate forward, the appeal for forgiveness, and the application of forgiveness. Those are going to be the central headings to set before us the structure of this book. Now, due to the brevity of the letter, as I mentioned just moments ago, and, and hopefully in order to help us capture how Philemon flows together as a whole, we're going to begin each lesson by reading the totality of this letter, and then we're going to narrow our focus after reading the totality of the letter to the specific section that we are dealing with. So for our purposes tonight, since this is part one of our three-part series, we're going to focus primarily on what Paul has to say in verses 1 to 3 after giving you guys some preliminary background information. And as we'll see by the conclusion of tonight's study, these opening verses, though often read rather quickly, they do provide us with much to think about regarding key background information uh, with the book of Philemon as well as theological insights that we should consider as believers so we've now established an overarching structure for how we're going to study this book in the weeks to come. We've got that. We've got the structure. That brings us to the next items we're going to address about the book of Philemon in order from the outline I provided you with just moments ago. Namely, what is the theme of the book of Philemon? And what is the purpose for why Philemon was written in the first place? As you'll see in your handouts, I've chosen the title of the series of this uh, study through the book of Philemon as God's manual for Christian forgiveness. Pretty easy way of summarizing what the book of Philemon is. I regard it as God's manual for Christian forgiveness. And the title of the series really goes hand in hand with the central theme that we can extract from this New Testament letter. Notice the theme listed below the title in your handouts. I think you'll find it fits nicely with the title I've selected. What's the central theme of the book of Philemon? Many of you came in here tonight, you've never read the book before, or for those of you who had read the book before, you couldn't summarize the central message of Philemon, you can now when you leave. Here's the central theme. God's forgiveness produces Christian forgiveness. That's what Philemon is all about. God's forgiveness produces Christian forgiveness. Without going into too many details and without giving too many spoilers away, hopefully, I want to briefly show you how this theme relates to the purpose of the book of Philemon. And to accomplish this objective, as you've likely noted in your handouts by now, I've provided us an excerpt from the Gospel Coalition. That excerpt comes from the Gospel Coalition's introductory overview of the book of Philemon. And I think it will give us a 30,000-foot flyover of what this book is all about, how it pertains to the theme of the letter. And as we go into the second and third sections of this letter in the next two weeks, we'll be able to unpack some of these details at greater length. But for our purposes tonight, please feel free to follow along with me as I read from this citation. I've edited it slightly for readability and objectivity from the Gospel Coalition's website. I've got a source there in your handout as well. You can go and access this for yourself if you want to know more about Philemon for future studies. But follow along with me here with the excerpt I've provided you with. This is a direct quote for the most part, slight paraphrasing as deemed necessary for readability. The Gospel Coalition says that Philemon was a wealthy Christian who lived in the city of Colossae, about 100 miles inland from Ephesus. And that is uh, noted in Colossians 4.17. 
Because of Philemon's vast resources, his home was the host of a local church, noted in Philemon 2. At some point prior to Paul's first Roman imprisonment from A.D. 60 to A.D. 62, somewhere in that range, at some point prior to Paul's first Roman imprisonment in the early 60s A.D., Onesimus, one of Philemon's bondservants, fled to Rome possibly having stolen money or property from Philemon, and now a fugitive, as we'll find out later in verses 18 to 19 of Philemon. We find Onesimus was living in the most populated city of the Roman Empire, hoping to escape detection. In a rather remarkable set of circumstances, Onesimus somehow came into contact with the Apostle Paul and became a Christian. And as he grew in Christ, he spent much time and effort helping Paul, who would eventually become severely constrained by his imprisonment. As much as Paul would have liked to retain the services of Onesimus, Paul knew that Onesimus's fugitive status and wrongdoing against his master needed to be addressed. Paul thus wrote this letter as an appeal to Philemon to appreciate the transformation that had occurred in Onesimus's life and to receive him back not merely as a bondservant, but as a forgiven brother, and we'll note that in Philemon, verse 16. And to conclude from the Gospel Coalition's introductory overview excerpt, in light of the Gospel's power in Onesimus' life, this letter reveals a transformed relationship between bondservant and master, a new relationship that would defy all of the ingrained status distinctions of the surrounding Greek and Roman culture. And that is the end of our quote So in reflecting on the theme and purpose undergirding the book of Philemon, we can say that this New Testament writing testifies to the gospel's power to produce forgiveness and reconciliation amongst estranged people. Or stated differently, when somebody has truly believed the gospel and has, as a result of believing the gospel, been reconciled to God, they will actively pursue reconciliation with those who have wronged them. The pursuit of reconciliation is a direct byproduct of one who has believed the gospel. And by the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit, believers will feel inclined to grant forgiveness to those who have sinned against them because they recognize the magnitude of how much they have been forgiven for their sins committed against the triune God. You see, receiving forgiveness from God will propel a redeemed sinner to forgive others and to be obedient to Scripture's instruction regarding conflict resolution. That's taught in many texts throughout Scripture, perhaps most uh, easily summarized and most straightforwardly summarized in Ephesians 4.32. Many of you have heard this verse before. Paul writes in that text, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. That is the natural propensity of the believer by the work of the Holy Spirit. Being redeemed from the slave market of sin, being forgiven for their sins committed against a holy God, propels them to forgive those who have sinned against them and have wronged them. But on the other hand, there's another side to the coin. Unbelievers do not actively or genuinely pursue reconciliation with those who have wronged them because they have not themselves experienced reconciliation from God. 
Since unbelievers have never truly received God's forgiveness for their sins, they will not take it upon themselves to model forgiveness toward other people, nor will they have any desire to be obedient to Scripture's instruction regarding conflict resolution. Notice how the lifestyle pattern of the unbeliever is described in Titus 3.3. This is who we were prior to conversion. This is who every unbeliever in the present moment can be described as. This is from Paul's account, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Titus 3.3. Paul says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient to God's word, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. In God's providence, our study of the book of Philemon is going to provide us with a time for self-evaluation, for self-examination before the living God. As many of you already know, over the past 17 months, our church has been embroiled in significant controversy. And without going into too many details on the recording, I will say that in light of this controversy, in light of the discussions that have been going on within our church about this controversy, I must say I do agree with the gist of what Brother Roberts said during our most recent church conference. For those of you who are not here for that church conference, let me just summarize what he said. Here's the essence of what he said. He said, in a nutshell... The main reason why our church has been in this ongoing conflict is due to people being unwilling to go directly to those who they believe have wronged them and work through conflict in a biblical fashion. It's the essence of what he said at the end of church conference in light of a question that was asked by a church member. But I want to take it a step further And building off of what Brother Robert said at our most recent church conference, I believe the issue he mentioned stems from at least two root causes that apply directly to us. It's either due to many Christians in our church being ignorant about what the Bible says about forgiveness and conflict resolution. It's possible that many of the people involved in the controversy that directly pertains to our local church just don't really know what the Bible teaches about biblical conflict resolution and Uh, If that's the case, hopefully this series will be of use to helping educate people who find themselves in that camp. But there's also another possible um, reason for why there is conflict. There may be another root cause that is uh, prompting our church to continue to go on in our current controversy. And, And I believe that second root cause or reason could be stated in this way. It could be due to many in our church being unconverted. And as a result of their unbelief, they just simply don't care about applying what the Bible says about forgiveness and conflict resolution. Why do I say that? Well, because if we do what the Bible says regarding conflict resolution and biblical reconciliation, those things can be difficult. They can be inconvenient. They can be painful to go through. And because the unregenerate man is selfish, he doesn't want to obey Scripture when it makes him feel uncomfortable, when it makes life a little more messy. There's certainly more that can be said about why conflict presently exists in our local church, but I think both of those realities get to the heart of the essence of what uh, is going on in our church, and I think that um, they really piggyback well off of what 
Brother Robert said. And, and when I say that this study is going to give us time for self-examination, I want us and I want the listeners to, to really take a step back and, and ask ourselves, are, are we truly applying biblical principles for dealing with sin, whether it be in our lives or in the lives of others in our church? Are we, are we doing what the Bible says in modeling Christ-like, biblically-rooted principles of forgiveness, reconciliation. Only we know where we stand before the Lord in those regards. This book's going to give us with, uh, it's going to provide us with a really great opportunity to examine ourselves. And for those who are listening, uh, whether it be from FBC Edna or from uh, different parts of the world uh, who may stumble upon these uh, lessons by happenstance, I pray it's a good opportunity for them to examine themselves and see how they're applying these principles in their own lives. Because what we're going through right now, friends, there's really only one word that I can use to describe. It's heartbreaking. We are in a heartbreaking situation in our current context. But that's why we're here. That's why we're taking the time to study the book of Philemon. And we're going to hopefully, by God's grace, in studying this Bible... It will never be said of you and of me that we fall into either of those two categories. By God's grace, may it never be said of you or of me that we are either ignorant about what the Bible says about forgiveness and conflict resolution, or on the other hand, by the grace of God, may it never be said about anybody here that at the end of this, at the end of this study and at the end of our series that we're not in Christ. Because if you're not in Christ, you're not going to be able to apply anything that we're going to talk about tonight or in the weeks to come. And it would be a tragedy if there be anybody here tonight not in Christ, or if there be anybody listening to this lesson who are not in Christ. It would be a tragedy to be spiritually unaffected as you grow in head knowledge about what the Bible has to say about some very important issues theologically and practically. Indeed, may we use this study through Philemon as an opportunity, if you're not in Christ, to surrender your life to his lordship. And if you are in Christ, to grow in your propensity to apply what Scripture has to say about conflict resolution. We're going to learn a lot in the study. So we've identified the structure of the book of Philemon. We've identified the theme and the purpose of the book of Philemon by way of introduction. Now we're going to start getting into the weeds of verses 1 to 3. For the remainder of this lesson, as we uh, seek to, from here on, identify the author of this letter uh, as we seek to identify the original recipients of this letter, as we seek to identify the likely date of Philemon's authorship. We're going to now refocus our attention on what we just read moments ago, specifically with reference to verses 1 to 3. I want us to reread those verses together as we prepare to engage with the text and uh, consider some other cross-references that pertain to what this portion of Scripture is saying Look again to verse 1, and we'll read on to verse 3. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. While verse 1 identifies the source of Philemon as the Apostle Paul and Timothy, we ultimately find in verse 19 the identity of the author of Philemon was the Apostle Paul himself. Verse 19 tells us that it is Paul who wrote this letter with his own hand. 
And although it was tempting to use tonight as an opportunity to launch into a detailed biographical sketch of uh, the Apostle Paul's life and ministry, um, it's unfortunately outside the scope of a three-week series. So um, you've probably noticed by now there is a, uh, what seems to be a rather illegible timeline provided in your handouts. No need to be concerned. I can point you to the digital resource to access that handout. I'm also going to post this on the church Facebook page tomorrow for Fun Fact Friday. So either way, uh, whether it be through our church Facebook page or uh, through online, I can, I can get you that handout more legibly. This didn't come out well on the printer. But in any case... Um, when you do get access to that timeline, I just encourage you to familiarize yourself with the life of Paul. Get to know the man who wrote this portion of Scripture. I know in youth, for the longest time, we've been studying the book of James, and we've made reference to several of Paul's writings, but we, we've never really focused on Paul the man and Paul the theologian. So uh, we just encourage you to look at that uh, timeline as you have opportunities to do so. But regarding Paul's authorship of Philemon, because the author is Paul, historically, there's never been any doubt that this letter is authoritative for all Christians of all ages and that it should be included in the New Testament canon. As short as this letter is, there's never been any doubt as to its authority and its application for the church. So we should take great comfort in that. And we should devote ourselves to studying it carefully. Now, before we move on from our discussion about Paul, I know we've just identified him as the author, I just want to pick a few uh, key insights out from this introductory phrase in verse 1. Notice how Paul describes himself here. He writes about himself, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. It's interesting that Paul begins the book of Philemon by identifying himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus and not as an apostle of Jesus Christ, which he does in all of his other letters. Commentators have spilled no shortage of ink over uh, trying to explain why Paul does not follow his standard introductory pattern that we find in his other writings. There are some commentators who've argued that the reason for Paul's identification as a prisoner of Jesus Christ is just merely a personal reference to Paul being in prison at the time that he wrote this letter. Advocates for this perspective don't see any other reasons for looking any further into what is plainly stated in the text. They just say, you know what? A lot of spilled ink here. Paul's just saying he's in prison. That's the point. Okay, That's, that's one uh, fairly popular view, specifically in the last uh, 100, 150 years it's really come along uh, in heavy dispensational circles. On the other hand, another view that is held largely by commentators regarding this phraseology at the outset of Philemon is that Paul's reference to being a prisoner of Christ Jesus goes beyond Paul's physical circumstances. It includes his physical circumstances, but it goes beyond his physical circumstances to provide us with a unique spiritual perspective. Namely, that Paul recognizes that his imprisonment is ultimately due to the sovereign arrangement of the Lord Jesus Christ. According to this view, commentators would say that Paul is essentially saying by way of introduction, I am in prison because the Lord Jesus Christ has put me here for a specific purpose and I'm here to glorify him in the fulfillment of that purpose for this stage of my life. He's saying whether I enjoy peace or suffer hardship as a prisoner, I do so as a representative of the one who is the sovereign reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. Yes, 
Reference to his physical circumstances being in prison, but much deeper going into the realm of the spiritual. It's view number two that I stumbled upon in my preparations for tonight. But there is a third view that floats around. And um, commentators who hold to this third view just make a, a very, uh, I think, in light of the totality of Philemon, a very fair point that this is the most personal letter in the New Testament that Paul writes. He, he doesn't refer to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ simply because he, he's writing this to a dear friend. He doesn't have to make an appeal to his authority as an apostle, though he certainly does have that authority. But he's writing this with a, with a very personal touch. In fact, proponents of this view suggest that Paul's desiring, by way of making this personal, he's, he's really trying to, to, to reach Philemon at the heart level with what he's saying in this letter by way of appeal. It's as if he's saying to Philemon, Philemon, if I can embrace the circumstance of being in prison, if I can take on this difficult task of being a prisoner, then can you not likewise embrace the less difficult task that I'm about to entrust you with in this letter? And as we're going to study on through this letter, that task would be forgiving a runaway slave that likely stole from him. Can't you do that, Philemon? For me, you know me. We're close friends. I love you. We're brothers. Make it an appeal, a personal note. So those are three primary views that you'll run into regarding um, what Paul means here in the opening phrase of the letter. I think I'm most persuaded uh, by the second and third views. I think that uh, views two and three aren't mutually exclusive from one another. I do think the letter is immensely personal. I think Paul also has a remarkably high view of the sovereignty of God as we uh, see in Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. He continually references Christ's sovereignty and putting him in prison for a particular purpose in a particular time. So um, I think it's both and. I think there's a personal touch to the letter. I also think there's a high uh, view of God's sovereignty and a spiritual touch to this letter. Okay, so Paul's the author of the book of Philemon. But Timothy's mentioned here as well. What do we make of Timothy? Well, um, it's interesting to note that in addition to this letter... Timothy's also mentioned several other places in the New Testament. He's mentioned uh, in 2 Corinthians in the opening verse. He's mentioned the opening verses of Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, and 2 Thessalonians. Timothy just keeps appearing all over the corpus of Paul's writings. Well, why is that the case? Well, the testimony of the New Testament is that Timothy was one of Paul's closest minister, uh, ministry comrades. They were dear friends and co-laborers in the Lord. Let me give you a flyover of the biblical and historical evidence that we can use to get some insights into the relationship that Paul and Timothy had with one another. You see, Paul and Timothy first began laboring together between the years 49 and 51 AD. We have two primary reasons for reaching this conclusion. First reason, whether consulting Christian or non-Christian historians, virtually all of those historians agree that the Jerusalem Council took place in either 49 or 50 A.D. The Jerusalem Council is that of which is referenced in Acts 15, dealing largely with whether or not it was necessary for new believers to get circumcised and follow uh, specific aspects of the Old Testament law. So whether you're a Christian historian or a non-Christian historian, that council took place in either 49 or 50 A.D. Well, that council, described in Acts 15, takes place uh, chronologically before what we find in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 to 3. And it's in that text when we first find that Paul and Timothy come to meet one another 
and after meeting one another, Timothy begins to go with Paul on various missionary journeys. In fact, Paul takes Timothy under his wing and entrusts him as a spiritual son, as a protege, if you will. So that puts the earliest year for their ministry relationship at 49 AD. It could have been 50, but no, no earlier than 49 by virtue of the Jerusalem Council happening before Paul and Timothy met one another. Second reason, though, uh, for getting a 49 to 51 AD time frame on their relationship. Uh, Timothy is mentioned in 1 Thessalonians, and the book of 1 Thessalonians cannot have been written earlier than 51 AD. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 3.1, we find that Paul's um, stay in Athens, 1 Thessalonians 3.1, Paul's stay in Athens that's described elsewhere in Acts 17, verses 16 to 34, um, puts him before Gallio being the proconsul of Achaia, which occurred in 51 AD. That is when he was installed as the proconsul of Achaia. So if Gallio did not begin his tenure of proconsul until 51 AD, and 1 Thessalonians 3.1 says that Paul was in Athens, which is referred to in Acts 17, then by necessary consequences, the events described in Acts 16 and 17, Paul and Timothy meeting in Acts 16, Paul in Athens in Acts 17, and Gallio being installed as proconsul of Achaia in, in a chapter 18, that, that makes it to where we have to arrive at a year no later than 51 AD for when Paul and Timothy first met. So, what does it matter? What does it matter if Paul and Timothy met in 49, 50, or, or maybe 51, depending on when you date the Jerusalem Council? Why am I telling you all this? Well, my friends, I just want to remind you as we lay the groundwork for the book of Philemon, and I think we lose sight of this when we study the Word of God, these are real people that we're talking about here. These are real people in a real context with real relationships. And sometimes when we study the Bible, we have a tendency just to make it uh, a mere head knowledge or, or an academic exercise, and we lose sight of the existential. We lose sight of, of, of the touch, if you will, of, of the fact that these were real people who are just like you and me. And they had lives, and they had family, and they had relationships. The Bible was not written in a vacuum. We lose sight of that so often. We need to be aware of the the existential or the aspect of how these people interacted in reality when we study. It's going to help the Bible come more alive to us in doing so. We need to always ensure that we keep this in mind as we engage in the task of interpreting God's Word. Real people, real context, real circumstances. Okay, so we've got the author down. We've identified the structure, the theme and purpose, the author. We're moving on now in our overview. I want us to now begin to transition into an evaluation of the original recipients of the letter, and that's going to lead into a brief discussion on the dating of the letter. Notice the rest of verse 1 and 2 again with me in your Bibles. We've looked at Paul and Timothy. Rest of verse 1 into verse 2 now. Paul writes, To Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. So just to make sure everybody's still awake tonight, how many recipients are explicitly referenced in those verses we just read? How many do we have there? Okay, Alan says four. Yep, four, right? 
So we've got the affectionate forward, right? Philemon 1 to 3. This is, this is Paul's affectionate forward. And he explicitly references these four recipients. You've got Philemon, who's described as our beloved brother and our fellow worker. We have Aphia, who is described as our sister. We have Archippus, who's described as our fellow soldier. And then we have the church, and uh, the, the church that meets in Philemon's house. A lot of things that can be said here about these recipients. Let's just go through some key observations here as we make our way through these verses. First, I want you to notice how the designation hour is attached to each of the individuals that are mentioned in the opening verses of this letter. Philemon is... He's not just any brother and fellow worker. He's our beloved brother and fellow worker. Aphia is our sister. Archippus is our fellow soldier. Why is that significant? What's the big deal? Well, um, my friends, this intertextual observation about how Paul is writing to these recipients, it demonstrates that Paul and Timothy had personal relationships with the people who originally received this letter. As I mentioned just a few moments ago, these are real people that they're writing to. They've got real relationships in other words, these people, these, these real Christians in the first century receiving this letter, they weren't strangers. They were dear friends. And as we see from the usage of the word beloved here, it would not be a stretch to say that Philemon, Aphia, and Archippus were some of Paul and Timothy's closest friends. He and Timothy loved these people, truly, from the heart. Put yourself in Paul's and Timothy's shoes. Imagine you writing a very important letter to a dear friend, somebody who's as close as blood. That's what we're getting at here uh, in the book of Philemon. This is an intimate, personal letter that Paul's writing. Furthermore, the fact that Paul took it upon himself to address this letter to Philemon's entire church is also significant. It speaks to the communal nature of a local church body. You see, in God's wise providence, the close-knit culture of a healthy local church is a powerful means to graciously hold fellow believers accountable to applying Scripture to one's life. The implication of that reality is that the local church is not to be a place that's filled with a bunch of random people that you barely know or never talk to. If that's the church that you're a part of, there's either something wrong with you or there's something wrong with the church. Either the church isn't hospitable and welcoming or you're not making an effort to get to know people. Because, as we just see here in Paul's writing, the local church is to be a context in which you have fostered the closest-knit friendships and relationships in your life. You see, in the final analysis, the Christian has far more in common with fellow believers in the local church than they do with unbelieving friends and family members because of our co-union in Jesus Christ. If you're part of a church, to the listener, speaking to us as well, if you're part of a church where you don't know the people that well, where it can't be said that your closest relationships are found in that body, you need to do some serious soul-searching. It's either because you're not making the effort or it's because you are making the effort and the heart of the church just isn't filled with hospitality and a desire to do life together as the body of Christ. So when we evaluate this feature of first century Christianity as evidenced here from the book of Philemon, we should be all the more motivated to wholeheartedly invest ourselves in the life of a local congregation. I want us also now, by way of observation, to note the significance of the individuals who are explicitly listed in this introduction. First, I want you to notice the phrase, your house. 
The Greek rendering of this phrase at the end of verse 2 indicates that the people mentioned here, Philemon, Aphia, and Archippus, those people belonged to the same household. This means that, again, noting the personal nature of this letter, Aphia was likely the wife of Philemon. Archippus is likely the son of Philemon. So this is a family that is strongly rooted and grounded in their Christian faith. As a family, they were the possessors of a strong Christian heritage. Another key observation that I want us to make here, just looking at these verses, um, we have four specific designations used by Paul in this affectionate forward to describe the members of the household. So how does Paul describe Philemon, Aphia, and Archippus? Well, notice he refers to Philemon as brother and fellow worker, he refers to Aphia as sister, and he refers to Archippus as fellow soldier. I think we all know and are familiar with the fact that from the first century on to now in 2022, that fellow Christians throw around the terms brother and sister to refer to their uh, mutual relationship as members of the body of Christ, right? 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12 talks about how we're all part of the body of Christ. We have that intimate, personal, brotherly, sisterly relationship by virtue of our common salvation. I think we're all familiar with those particular designations. So I don't want to spend too much time there tonight. What I want us to do is I want us to look at these other two designations that are used. A lot less familiar to us, I would say. How do you think we should understand Philemon's description as a fellow worker and Archippus's description as a fellow soldier? What are we to make of these designations? Let's go through those together. The Greek term that Paul uses for fellow worker in this context is always used in the New Testament to refer to one who has worked alongside him for the cause of Christ. And there's a drastically important application for us to take away from this particular word, uh, word choice in light of the rest of the New Testament. Don't miss this. You'll notice several cross-references in your handouts that you can look at later. But regarding this application here, for Paul... Every person he regarded as a fellow worker were of doctrinal and missional like-mindedness. They were his most trusted confidants. They were united in their desire to be obedient to Christ's commission, to make disciples of all the nations. They were inseparable. They were willing to go to war for the cause of the advancing of the gospel and the building up of the kingdom of God and safeguarding the purity of the local church in doctrine and in worship. My friends, this is precisely how it should be for us nearly 2,000 years later with regard to who we see as our fellow workers Although there's always going to be differences of opinion on doctrinal and missional convictions that are not of essential uh, that are not of essential relevance or application to the faith, there are always going to be some disagreements that godly believers may share amongst one another. But in the final analysis, believers must be sure to choose those who they co-labor with on the basis of doctrinal and missional like-mindedness. And that like-mindedness is going to be the fuel that keeps you together when times get tough. There should be a basic like-mindedness of what you believe, why you believe those truths, and how you should apply it to the context of Christian uh, church worship and Christian evangelism in regard to those who you work with. 
Obviously, it needs to fit under the broader umbrella of Christian orthodoxy, right? We don't want to co-labor with non-Christians and Christian enterprises. But at the fundamental level, there are times where there are certain areas of doctrine and there are certain areas of missional practice that you and your co-workers need to ensure you're in agreement on. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to coexist. And that could look different for different people. Different contexts might mean different lines that you draw in the sand and, and other lines that you can maybe allow for charitable disagreement on. But the final analysis, Paul is very, very clear. It is not biblically acceptable to regard anybody as a fellow worker if they either willingly reject doctrine that is essential to the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints or they reject doctrine or missional practice that will make it impossible for you to peacefully coexist with one another. And again, different contexts make it to where a certain compromise or a certain uh, instance of agreeing to disagreement uh, may be more appropriate than in another context. And that's, what, that's between you and the Lord and that uh, person or group to determine what those lines are. So that's what Paul is referring to with regard to the designation fellow worker. Look at that second designation that I mentioned, though. It's the designation that Paul uses in reference to Archippus. He, he refers to him as a fellow soldier. It's interesting that Paul also uses this in his second letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. He, he calls Timothy, uh, or rather he exhorts Timothy in his efforts to press on in his ministry endeavors as a fellow soldier or a good soldier. And we see time and time again throughout the New Testament that the Christian life is presented as an intense battle. It is a spiritual war. Many passages we could go to that accentuate this truth, but perhaps none are more clear than what we find in Ephesians 6. If you have your Bibles, which I trust that all, uh, you guys all do as I look out to you all tonight. If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. In verses 12 to 17, one of the clearest passages that allude to the spiritual warfare that Christians undergo in this life. As you turn there, I want you to listen to how graphically Paul describes the battle that we face as believers residing in the fallen world. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, because of this war, because of this struggle, he says, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. My friends, every Christian faces a spiritual battle that is of cosmic proportions. So this has application to every Christian living in every generation. We and I, like Archippus, 
are going to face a spiritual battle in this life, and we must endure as a good soldier, as a fellow soldier with Paul and with every godly and faithful minister that God has put in service to his kingdom throughout the ages. Now, before we move on to conclude our study with a consideration of verse 3, there's just one more important observation to make from uh, verses 1 and 2 with respect to Archippus, with respect to Timothy, and it's going to help us zero in on an approximate date for the book of Philemon. When was Philemon written? Let's look at the evidence to provide us with clarity to that question. The testimony of Colossians 4.17 indicates that Archippus was in the early stages of his ministry endeavors, which means that Philemon could not have been written before the book of Colossians. Moreover, since Paul directly mentions Onesimus in Colossians 4.9, it's clear that Philemon could not have been written until after Colossians, right? Because if Colossians is, or if uh, Onesimus is still with Paul when Colossians is being written, then obviously Philemon would not have been written before Colossians. But we also find in Colossians and Philemon that many of the same names are found in those letters, which indicates that those letters were probably written around the same time. There's not a big chasm between when Colossians was written and when Philemon was written. As I mentioned earlier, remember, Archippus is mentioned in both Colossians and Philemon, so this is a, uh, a crucial note for helping us date this letter. Moving into some historical evidence now, we also know from these letters, that is Colossians and Philemon, that Paul wrote them while he was in prison in Rome. So we have Colossians and Philemon written around the same time, but Philemon having to be written after Colossians, and they were both written while Paul was in Rome. So when was Paul in prison in Rome? Well, we know from historical evidence and from the testimony of Scripture that Paul faced two Roman imprisonments during his lifetime. The first Roman imprisonment spanned from the years 60 to 62 AD, and the second Roman imprisonment spanned from the years 67 and 68 AD. So which imprisonment works best for a dating of Philemon? Well, based on the internal evidence of Colossians and Philemon, because Timothy is mentioned in both of those letters, Timothy was not yet pastoring the church in Ephesus whenever Colossians and Philemon was written. Timothy was pastoring the church in Ephesus. Well, he would have had him abandon his church by being with Paul whenever these letters are being written. So we know that means that Paul would have had to have written Colossians and Philemon at some point before Timothy took on the pastorate at the church in Ephesus. We also know that Paul wrote 2 Timothy from a Roman prison. And in 2 Timothy, Timothy is already the pastor at Ephesus. So we've got Colossians and Philemon written while Paul is in a Roman prison, and we've got 2 Timothy written while Paul is in a Roman prison. The only difference is Timothy's in Ephesus when 2 Timothy's written, and Timothy's with Paul when Colossians and Philemon is written. So what does that mean? Where does that leave us? It, it leaves us with automatically dating the authorship of Philemon to Paul's first Roman imprisonment. Paul wrote the book of Philemon at some point between 60 and 62 AD during his first Roman imprisonment. Um, we know that, again, from the evidences that I've just provided you with as confirmed 
also by the testimony of secular history, not just biblical history. So it's good to see how uh, time and time again, the testimony of scripture and testimony of history are harmonious with one another. So that brings us to the conclusion of our overview tonight. Just to recap what we have discovered from looking at historical and biblical evidences, this is the conclusions that we can make about the book of Philemon, holistically. The book of Philemon can be broken up into three sections. Verses 1 to 3 is what I have titled the affectionate forward. Verses 4 to 16 is the appeal for forgiveness. And verses 17 to 25 is the application of forgiveness. The theme and purpose of the book of Philemon can be summarized as God's forgiveness produces Christian forgiveness. The author of the book of Philemon is the Apostle Paul. And when he wrote this letter, Timothy was residing with Paul during his first Roman imprisonment which puts the dating of this letter between the years 60 and 62 AD. And as we see from the internal evidence of Philemon, the original recipients of this letter was Philemon himself, along with his wife, Aphia, son, Archippus, and his entire church that met in his home. By God's grace, may all this background information help us to accurately interpret what is contained within this portion of the New Testament in the next two weeks. Now, as we prepare to transition into a time of group discussion in just a few moments, we can't skip verse 3. Briefly, notice in verse 3 how Paul concludes his affectionate forward. Listen to what he writes, verse 3. He says, as he does so often in the New Testament, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the standard greeting that Paul uses in all 13 of the New Testament letters that are directly associated with him. Why does he use that phrase? If you've read anything that Paul has written, you see that, you you think, yeah, it's a pretty cool introduction, but let's get to the good stuff, right? Let's get to all the the meat and potatoes of what he has to say about theology and about uh, personal application. Maybe tonight will help... um, Enlarge your appreciation for what Paul is saying right at the get-go of all of his letters. You see, Paul uses his introduction in all of his letters for the purpose of reminding his audience of three fundamental realities that are essential to their faith. And if you're a Christian tonight, if you're a Christian listening to this recording, it's essential to your faith as well. And every time you read Paul, he wants you to be reminded of these three realities. He wants you to be reminded that grace is the means of salvation. Peace is the result of salvation. And the triune God is the source of salvation. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is the means of salvation. Peace is the result of salvation. The triune God is the source of salvation. Every time you read Paul, he wants you to know that right off the bat. That it is God who authors salvation in eternity past. It is God who accomplishes salvation at the appointed moment in time. And it is God who applies the benefits of salvation for the believer to enjoy into eternity future. It is the grace of God that provides needy and perishing sinners with the free gift of being forgiven of their sin and being a member of God's heavenly kingdom by virtue of trusting in Jesus Christ. And as a result of God's gracious gift of salvation, all believers experience peace with their holy creator. 
As was intended by Paul, I leave you with that thought as we transition into our time of group discussion. May those glorious realities, grace is the means of salvation, peace as the result of salvation, and God as the source of salvation. May those glorious realities be at the forefront of your mind and my mind as we study this book and as we continue our study through the Word of God as long as we have opportunity to do so. Well, at this time, as you notice in your handouts, we're going to transition into a season of group discussion and try to put some context or some clarity around some key takeaways that we can derive from tonight's lesson. Starting with question one here. Open up the floor for discussion. How has tonight's study reminded you of the relationship between accurately interpreting books of the Bible and rightly understanding key pieces of background information about those books. So in light of all the the background information and piecing together data from the New Testament and corroborating it with historical evidence, how has all of that reminded you of the relationship between rightly understanding the Bible and also needing to know a little bit about the background of that part of the Bible that you're studying? Open up the floor for conversation. I think if you if you understand the background information, it helps you to interpret the books of the Bible accurately. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's a correlation between your ability to really get deep into a part of Scripture and your ability to um, know why that part of Scripture was written, um, to whom it was written, when in redemptive history it was written, so on and so forth. I mean, most of the Old Testament historical accounts and the minor prophets, there is a specific, narrow focus that is in mind there that if you don't know something about the history undergirding those parts of the Old Testament, and as we just saw in Philemon, if you don't know something about the, the, the historical context in which that part of Scripture is written, you, you may be able to understand the gist of what's being said, but you're going to miss out on a whole lot more that's there. And praise God that in His grace, He's given us so much historical attesting evidences and resources to help us make sense of, of, of some of the parts of Scripture that Without that background, we can't just go as deep as we would like to. Um, Again, we know that Scripture, if you didn't have any background information, the the plain teachings of Scripture can be understood by anybody, right? That that is the perspicuity of Scripture. All things pertaining to salvation and the Christian life have been made so clear by God in Scripture that you don't need anything other than Scripture to be saved. It's sufficient. But to really go deep into some of... um, non-salvific parts of Scripture helps to have some of that background information at your disposal. Any other thoughts on, on that question? Very good with. I feel like to, to like apply to my own life, if you think about, like, if you're telling a story to a friend, like, at least for me, when I'm telling a story to somebody, I like to give a lot of context because it makes it make sense. Yeah. And my friend can understand, like, my perspective and other people in the story's perspective. And mm-hmm. so... 
like you were just saying, like I feel like if I didn't have this background knowledge on this book, it, I would just be getting surface level. And yeah. It's important to go deep. Oh, for sure. Um, how many of you guys like history? Okay, some some hands, not everybody's hands. Guys, I didn't start liking history till after I got saved. Because it never dawned on me until I'll never forget, I was 20 years old, I was at the Masters University, taking a world history class, just dreading it. Like, I just want to study the Bible. Why do I gotta do learn all this stuff about history? And our history professor, I forget the exact percentage, but the vast majority of scripture is historical narrative. It's recounting historical events with real people in real context doing real stuff. Like not, not, not something in a vacuum. This is history. And God is the author of history. So history matters to God. Um, it's going somewhere. He's accomplishing his purposes in history. So for me, learning to appreciate history more has helped me appreciate more of the, the digging for background information and, um, and really going into some of the, the, the extra evidences that God has provided in this world to help us, again, make more clear some things in Scripture that maybe aren't in and of themselves as clear as we would like for them to be. Again, we're not talking about salvific things, right? Everything, doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture. Everything that is necessary to salvation and to the Christian life is so expressly and plainly stated in Scripture that you don't need any other evidences to understand it. It's clear. We all understand that. We're talking about things that are not, they're, they're not directly related to salvation. It's historical or it's... Um, in the case of Philemon, it's a personal letter. Having background information can help us out a lot in our interpretation. Okay, number two. It's one of my favorite thoughts from tonight as I was preparing the lesson, just mulling over this point of, of applying these principles to my own life and hopefully to uh, our local church. Uh, question two. In light of verses one and two, Philemon... What insights were you able to glean about the value and importance of the local church? And how should those insights impact things like church involvement and church membership? Like you said, he refers to like Timothy and uh, Philemon as his brother, mm -hmm. and, um, the, and to Ophias, his sister. So we should be like a family because we are a family. Very good. Very good. I think it's really valuable to see that, like, it's not just this idea of us being a family isn't just something that's, like, new. This is something that goes back to the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And, I, like, that's, that's really valuable to see. And I think it kind of, I don't know, puts into perspective that it's something we should prioritize within the local church more. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Very well said. Um, so, like, what we're doing here tonight, right? We're we're in the parsonage. There's 12 of us here. Um, most home churches, 10 to 15 tops in those days. They had life together. Now, in a bigger city, they might have more. But in, Fi in Philemon's context, um, probably, probably like this. Um, smaller group, able to do life together, able to know one another at a, at a deep, intimate, personal level. And remember, this stage in history, in the Roman Empire, you were an outcast. And... Nero is the um, he, he is the emperor of Rome around this time. Christianity is being pushed to the margins. They're being persecuted. So it was important to have a support system with other believers because 
You're facing hostility of a return. Um, and, you know, having, having those deep-rooted bonds and connections with the body of Christ is so important to enduring through hardship and persecution. You know, God forbid it happens in America, but the way the tide is shifting in our nation, it's probably coming here at some point. Maybe here sooner than we'd like to think about. But the local church needs to be a place you can go to for encouragement, for support, um, to, to lock arms with, you need to be of like mind. All of those factors are so important, um, especially when a society is hostile to your faith. You know, I, I, I noted here historians debate as to who said it, whether it was um, Cyprian or Augustine, uh, but whoever said it, it's a great quote. So uh, the Lord knows. But there's a quote from church history. It goes like this. He who does not have the church as mother does not have God as father. That was Augustine, right? Augustine, yeah, or Cyprian. Those are the two guys that people like to debate about. Um, Augustine gets credit for everything. So, it, it, you know, for all we know, it probably was Augustine. But, yeah, listen to that. He who does not have the church as mother does not have God as their father. Now, just for clarity, they're not saying that, like, the only way you're going to be saved is if you're a member of a church and if you're a part of a church. That's not what that person was saying. They're saying that the evidence of your salvation is going to be shown in how committed you are to the community of faith. You see, in the New Testament and in the early church, there, there's just an assumption that Christians are saved into a community. There is no Lone Ranger Christianity in the Bible, nor in the early church. It is a communal faith. Um, and the idea that there's people, you know, that there could conceivably be people who make a profession of faith and they never join a local church, they never follow the Lord in being baptized as a believer, in terms of following the Lord, I mean, they never are obedient to that command that He gives. Um, they, they, they have no desire to pour into the lives of other believers. And as you stated at that time, Nero, you know, they met in people's houses because they didn't want it. They, they didn't broadcast. Yeah. Christian meeting tonight. Everybody come because they were kind of in hiding. And Nero lined the roads with their bodies. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were human torches. So to become a Christian was a cost. Yeah. It was not just... Hey, I want to join the local church. I want to come, you know, do the country club thing. Mm -hmm. Plug in, plug out. It, it was with a cost. Yeah. And so it wasn't like they, I mean, they, it, it, it had to be by the Spirit of God. Amen. You know, because there was, there was something. And not to say that there weren't false sure. people in sure. the church, but they were tight-knit and they held each other accountable. Yeah. And they were, you know, they weren't afraid to. Yeah deal with issues. There was, no, there was no such thing in those days as, as walking into a church and not knowing who the people around you were or not, or not knowing what's going on in their lives or them not knowing what's going on in your lives. There, there wasn't this like, well, like, I mean, we, we kind of go to church and we have nothing else to do. Um, you know, when the weather's nice, that's when we go to church. If, if the lake, uh, you know, if the lake's not available, then I guess we'll go to church or if we don't have an event at the Colosseum, you know, then I guess we'll go to church. No, like church was at the center of their life because Christ was the center of their life. 
If Christ is the center of your life, the church will be at the center of your life. Because Christianity and involvement in the local church go hand in hand. Um, Speaking of Nero, you know, Nero, he made it to where in the empire you had to worship him as God. He believed he was the basically the human personification of the sun god. I forget the name of the sun god um, that, the, that the Romans acknowledged. But he would basically, he would, he would sit in a chariot and, and put torches on the sides of the chariot to where flames would come up. And it, it basically was, it was him basking in this idea of him being the sun god. And when you got baptized as a Christian, you were fundamentally saying, because what, what Nero would require is he would require citizens to say Caesar is Lord or Nero is king. Nero, and he's saying it not as like, hey, I'm the emperor. No, like, hey, he's king of all. He's Lord of all. And the Christians would say when they got baptized, they were, and they would do it publicly, they were saying, I'm willing to die for the fact that Jesus Christ is the one true king and Lord of all. Not Nero, not any other man, Jesus and Jesus alone. So there was a cost. Like, you were in grave danger. Like, your survival was at stake for identifying as a Christian. Again, there's a difference, too. A lot of people talk about, you know, if you're, it's, they seem to talk, if you're, if you're not being persecuted, you, you, just, you just not be taking your faith seriously enough. No, like, if you, here's your thing, guys. You don't have to go looking for persecution. These first century Christians have to go out in the streets and act like a bunch of fools in order to get persecuted and say, hey, look, we're faithful Christians. Persecution will come from an unbelieving world if you simply live out your faith quietly but faithfully. If you speak truth when, when you need to speak truth, if you don't follow the crowd when everybody else follows the crowd, people are going to take notice of that. And we live in a time in history in America where, by and large, people have been favorable towards a Judeo-Christian worldview. Eventually, if you don't openly support things like LGBTQ lifestyle, or if you continue to affirm that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, and you don't bow the knee to pluralism, which is the idea that every single religion out there ultimately is just another slice of the pie. They're all equally relevant in the sight of God. They all lead to the same place. If you... Just remain faithful to your Christian commitments. You're, you're going to be persecuted, maligned, slandered, excluded from many aspects of societal leadership. It's just going to happen. So, again, you know, we're going all over the place here, but it's all important. The local church is key because when times get tough, that's when you need the body. That's, why, that's one of the many reasons why God has given us the church. It's so we can come alongside one another. When you get that, let's just make it practical right here. Forget persecution. When you get that cancer diagnosis, or when your sibling or your parents or your spouse dies, or when you lose your job, you need the church. Then that's why the church is here. It's one of the many reasons God's given it. So you can have support from brothers and sisters who love you and who want your spiritual good accomplished. It's a beautiful thing, the local church. Any other comments before we look at number three? Good discussion here, guys. I do. Go for it. It's just the whole time I was thinking, you know, I mean, we have we have the Bible for leadership, but you need church leaders also. And it's really, really hard to fellowship and come together as a family without the older generation or church leaders or deacons or anyone else willing to be the guy to be like, okay, let's do this. Starts I at mean, the top. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're 
you're willing, but the, it's quite a few of them that aren't. You know, the older generation, they're teaching their grandchildren and the other ones, it's okay, just go to Sunday school, go home, because you don't like some people. You know, that doesn't even make sense. Nobody comes to evening services because they don't feel like, I mean, some people can't drive in the dark. But basically, moral of the story, you... If football's on, I'm missing, I'm missing the evening service. Exactly. You know what I mean? If, if, uh, if, if I have anywhere else I can be, I'm not going to Wednesday night prayer meeting. You know, I mean, that, that's, that's not just local. Like, guys, that's, that's American Christianity, by and large. Not, not everywhere. There, there are healthy churches where people, you know, they're just craving to come together. Um, but, but those churches are few and far between. The, 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 the sad reality is church is just something that a lot of people kind of just do whenever it fits with their schedule, you know? Um, and it's sad. But those are great insights. It does start with the top. you got to have leaders that lead by example, right? I mean, God has given spiritual leadership to the church, and they are called, among many other things, to walk the walk, to lead by example, to, to help bring people in line as they need to do so, right? Um, it all works hand in hand. Very good insights there, Joe. Well, number three, question three. Although it is often quickly glossed over, as we mentioned during the lesson, how does Paul's use of the phrase grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ help you, the reader, be reminded about the gospel? You probably never thought much about it. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Until I read uh, MacArthur's commentary in preparing this message, I never really thought much about that little introduction. But it's profound. It's, all, it's, it's literally just a little snapshot of the gospel. Right out of the get-go. And I think if we would have known Paul, like, like I think Philemon and those who knew him well, like Paul, there's so many conversations that, that Paul and Jesus and other people in the Bible had with one another that, that just aren't in Scripture. You know, God, for reasons not only to himself, we don't have every conversation they had amongst one another. But I can only, if we can use our sanctified imaginations for a sec, I, I mean... I can just see, you know, Paul talking to other believers and explaining why he used that. And, and just to say, you know, I, I want the grace of God and, and, and the peace that believers know in Christ. I want that to just permeate them. I want, to, I want them to be reminded of that. Every time they think about truth, the grace of God and his peace that he gives through the gospel, that's yours. That belongs to you in Christ. It comes from God. Anyways, what, what, what did you guys take away from that little introduction there? I'm sorry if I stole anybody anybody's answer there, but I mean I think you kinda of, you summed it up well. And like I like how you 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 broke it down into those three points. It I don't know, I think it's a definitely a tool that you use. And like we talked about, like in several several different like books of the Bible, but when you break it down like that, it's easy to see. Like, yeah, that's a very good reminder. That's the whole reason that you're even reading this. I enjoy the the letters that Paul write, and then the other apostles, and the, even the Gospels. At the beginning, they're always especially the letters, that they're always addressing and they always want to know who they're writing to. Yes. They want to identify this is who this letter is to mm -hmm. and all-inclusive. Whoever hears this and understands, but what does the world do? They manipulate it 
and take key parts of it and says, see, this is this is why we believe what we believe. And they don't go back to this part yep. where it says grace. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, they don't go back to the beginning. You know, mm -hmm. what? who is he talking to? Who is he addressing? But to me, every time I read it, and especially when I get in the middle of a book and you're having trouble, and you're like, man, what does he mean by this? You go back to the beginning and you're like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Now I see where he was going with this because you get off track. Yeah. Because you've heard somebody say something, you're like, man, this just doesn't sound right. But then you go back and you're like, okay, now I understand what he's saying. There's a flow through. Amen. And no, so, and we've, we've had many great conversations about that. Because uh, even author, he's got an idea that he wants to communicate from start to finish. So it's always important to track that from start. Remember when he, when he kind of... You start finding yourself maybe straying from that central focus or try to remind yourself to get back to, okay, wait a second. What's he said so far? What's he trying to say? Who's he writing to? So on and so forth. You know, in, in fact, <clears throat> you know, speaking of manipulation, just this came to mind. One of the hardest parts of Philemon, and we're gonna have, I'm going to have to deal with this um, in this series, Philemon was a slave owner. Onesimus was a slave. What do you make of that? We're going to have to talk about what was slavery like during the Roman Empire. What does the Bible say about slavery? A lot of people look at Philemon and they, they just hate it because it talks about slavery. And it's an it's a issue we're going to have to talk about biblically and, and historically. And Lord willing, God will give us the grace to navigate those waters well. But, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people today, liberal, um, so-called Christians and unbelievers who make no uh, secrets about them being unbelievers, they look at a, a place like Philemon and say, you know, this is barbaric. How dare anybody care about this part of the Word of God? It talks about slavery in a positive light. We'll talk about that more, uh, Lord willing, in the next two lessons. But any other thoughts on number three? Elliot. I think when Anna was saying it's a good... Yeah, absolutely. Very good word there. All right, well, by way of conclusion, number four. In light of tonight's overview and introduction to the book of Philemon, what are you most excited to learn about over the next two weeks? There are two studies to come. What are you, what are you most eager to take away from this study? The biblical meaning of slave. Yeah, that'll be a doozy. I'm... I'm looking forward. I'm interested in yeah, that. I'm looking forward to, to dealing with it. Uh, where I, I I'm not going to tell you guys where I lean just yet because I haven't studied it thoroughly just yet. But I will say I, I want to preface for y'all and the listener. I think if we do justice to the text of Scripture, the answer that we're going to get is probably not what's sounds best to us, but nevertheless, we're going to have to go where the Bible goes on this. So we're going to have to deal with it. We're going to have to deal with it as the Bible deals with it. So we'll see where I land. And as I study and as we, we deal with this text um, in the next two weeks, we'll see where we go. Um, but it's going to be a touchy subject. So we'll see how, we'll see how the word allows us to get through that. Um, no, but, okay, so Alan's looking forward. I'm looking forward to that, too. Uh, any other 
things that you guys are looking forward to learning a little bit more about? I think after reading through the whole thing, um, the the convert, well not necessarily the conversation, but like what was being written kind of looks different than what I would expect when like asking for forgiveness or, you know, like that kind of thing is going down. So I'm very interested to see like how that's supposed to be modeled and like how I can apply that to my own life. I am too. Because, you know, another thing about Philemon, that's why we're talking about it, it's the time to talk about it, introduction to the, the study. Um, he, he writes it, Paul writes it to Philemon with the assumption that he already knows exactly what he's talking about. See, we're on the outside looking in 2,000 years later. Paul knows exactly all the details. He's heard it from Onesimus, and uh, Philemon, of course, is on the other side of the coin. He knows what happened. So we're kind of... We're kind of eavesdropping on a conversation that has already taken place in a way, so we really have to use um, use the rest of Scripture and, again, kind of know a little bit about um, the historical context to, to get some of those details a little bit more clear for us. But, no, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for that, too. Um, it, should be, it should be really interesting to... It models where Jesus says, be as wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. Mm. And so being as you utilize the people that you have in your company, Onesimus appealed to Paul, Yeah. okay, and he got saved. Now Paul is writing this letter for Onesimus to go back yeah. because Paul is saying you need to go back and make it right. But Paul is giving him a letter to remind Onesimus where he came from. To me... That first part where he says prisoner, I think he's trying to remind Onesimus of the prison that he was in before he got, I mean, uh, finally of the prison that he was in before he got saved, and we were all, but yet by grace, yeah. were saved. So to me, that just shows that, that, you know, whenever you're dealing with a situation, God says for you to be wise, and you get people that are going to be effective in your defense. Mm -hmm. You know, and to me, it's... Uh, there's nothing wrong with strategically yeah. handling a situation. You know, it's the, this is not manipulation. This is utilizing what God right. equipped you with. And Paul, what better man to write a letter than the Apostle Paul? Right. I mean, think of that. It's Luke was there. Luke wrote Acts and uh, the Gospel of Luke and maybe even the book of Hebrews. And uh, Luke, um, he could have gotten Luke to, to, to write a letter for him. He could have got another apostle to write, and they could have appealed to their authority. He went to not only an apostle, and being Paul, but Paul was close to Philemon. So not only does he have the authority as an apostle, but he's got that close, intimate friendship with him. So finally, or so Onesimus just knew that my best chance Absolutely. is Paul. Absolutely. And, and as we talked about, yeah, exactly. As we talked about earlier, like Paul, as, as smart as he is, he's like, okay. I'm addressing this thing to the whole church, too, so that this can't be some secret thing between Philemon and Onesimus. If Philemon wants to kind of, you know, stick it to him, say, hey, buddy, you know, yeah, we're, we're brothers in Christ, but, you know, no, you, you, you wronged me. You know, Paul said, nope, because I know when I write letters, they get read to the whole church, so I'm addressing it to the whole church. This is a church issue. I had a, just a thought, you know, it's like in that, of course, y'all probably haven't seen the movie, it was a long time ago, The Saint. And she's in Russia, and she's running, and these police are after her, this woman, 
and she's running for the embassy gate, and there's these soldiers standing at the embassy gate, and she's running with all her heart, and these guys are reaching, and they grab her jacket, and, and she's running, and she just gets out of the jacket as she falls into the arms of the soldiers, mm. okay? And they put her behind them and these Russian guys, and they can't cross that line because that's the embassy line. Right. And to me, that's what Onesimus was wow. pleading to Paul, and he's like, I'm safe. Mm-hmm. And they, of course, they spit in the soldier's face and everything, but they didn't cross that line. Right. And she was safe. Exactly. And so that's what, when you make a plea, it's like, man, you're, you're giving everything you can. You're laying it all down because this, it, this is between life and death for Onesimus. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll talk about that. But now, anyway. what was at stake with, uh, with a slave that pulled the yes. stunt that he did? But no, it's great. Great insight there. Any other thoughts to share before we close in prayer? And we'll, uh, we can fellowship as long as y'all want to fellowship uh, after our lesson tonight. So, any other thoughts before I pray? Looking forward to the next two weeks, guys. Thanks for your participation and uh, for listening to tonight's study. Hope it was a blessing to you. Let's pray and we'll conclude our study tonight. Father in heaven, we, we are overwhelmed your grace and giving us your word to study and to apply to our lives. Father, as we embark on the rest of our study through the book of Philemon, Lord, it's our prayer that our hearts will be receptive to all that you desire for us to glean from this precious book that you have inspired and preserved for nearly 2,000 years. And God, we do recognize that our church here in 2022, in our, in our context, Lord, is in the midst of a very difficult season and Father, we're aware that it's only you who are able to bring about the repentance, forgiveness, and healing that we so desperately need in our congregation. Father, I pray that by your grace, um, this manual of Christian forgiveness would help us in the days and weeks and months and possibly even years to come in navigating through um, just the controversy that embroils us here in our local church. And it's our deepest prayer, Lord God, that We would be found faithful to study this letter in the next two weeks. And Father, upon gleaning from the truths contained therein, that we would not merely keep it as head knowledge, but Lord, that we would apply it directly to our lives and to our church context so that we might be the men and women you've called us to be and that our church may be the beacon of light it's been called to be, a city set on a hill. God, we do ask and pray that you would... Draw us to yourself through times such as this. I thank you for every man and woman in this room of all ages. And for those listening to this message, I pray, Father, you work mightily in their lives. And, Father, if there's anybody that does not know you as Lord and Savior, Father, I pray they would cry out to Christ right now in faith, that they would see him in his perfect life, his death on the cross, his bodily resurrection, and his ascension into glory. Father, they would see him as their only hope to be reconciled to you and to be the apple of your eye forever and ever. Bless us now, Lord, as we bring this study to a conclusion tonight as we resume our time of fellowship as dear brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.